Hi, everyone. I'm Hesse Jones. Welcome to Tech Uncensored. We are in day three of Collision, and I'm here speaking to Andy Young, who is the co-founder and CEO of Proton, the privacy-focused company behind Proton Mail. Nice to see you here, Andy. Yes, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here and to speak with you today. Awesome. Privacy is one of my favorite topics, so I think this is going to be a fun conversation. So I see Proton in this in much the same light as DuckDuckGo. So you're riding a distant second to Google search, Gmail, but you're offering a radically different model that actually puts users first. Tell us about Proton Mail, Proton in general, and why you think what you're doing is vital to the future of privacy. I think the internet today has a vision that's been dominated by companies like Google and Facebook. And their philosophy is simply that the way the internet should work should be, we give you services for free and you give in exchange your most valuable intimate private information, which we're going to use however we see fit to make the maximum amount of money. And I think that model works great for them. They have trillion dollar market caps as a result, right? But it's sort of, to put it bluntly, a bad deal for everybody else in the world. And what Proton is trying to do is offer a maybe a different social contract to the average internet user. When you use a service like ProtonMail or like DuckDuckGo, what is implicit in here is we respect your privacy. So your data belongs to you. We're not going to abuse how we use that data. And we enforce that through end-to-end -end encryption. So it's not just a promise, but it's actually a mathematical guarantee. And the downside of that is that actually, instead of us giving you service for free, we may ask you to pay. And of course, not everybody pays. Proton is a, it's a freemium business model. 99% of users actually don't pay us. But 1% business users, the ones that want more features, may end up paying us. And that's kind of uh, how our model is different. And in the end, it is maybe not so different after all, because you think of Google services as free, but it's not really free, right? When you use Google, you are paying it back. You're just paying with something that is different, something maybe more intimate, more sensitive, it's something you cannot actually take back. Yeah, I, I don't think people realize how much information they're giving away and how much Google is actually scraping from their personal accounts in order to contextualize who they are as individuals. Let's move on to your work in antitrust discussions and two bills that have come out of Congress. Like we know, we understand uh, Facebook or sorry, Meta, Amazon, Fang, you know, the, the big tech companies they continue to persist. If they continue to persist in the way they're operating, innovation is going to suffer. So explain your role in these antitrust cases and why you think it's vital from a competition perspective. Well, what has happened in tech in the past two decades is there's been a complete lack of regulation. And this lack of regulation has essentially created conditions where massive companies could dominate the entire space with practices that are frankly anti-competitive. In such a scenario, <clears throat> sorry, in such a scenario, there's actually no way for any third parties to actually compete. Because if Google controls how you're discovered, how you're distributed, and even the platforms in which your services are provided on, then if they don't play fair, there's nothing you can do. So to kind of give an example, today Google could decide on a whim to kick any application off of the Play Store, and then it would not be accessible on Android devices anymore. And there is nothing you can do legally actually to prevent that. So they have this unchecked control. But Android today is maybe 60, 70%, 80% in some markets of the market. So 
you cannot be at that level of scale and simply not have any rules and regulations that you have to abide by because it doesn't create a level playing field where other people can actually compete. And this is why we view policy matters around international competition as absolutely essential because without competition, you actually can never solve the privacy problem. Thank you. So I, I want to delve a little bit more deeply into that because I think what you're also indicating is that as long as big tech continues to persist, there's going to be data that they control and the data that they can also aggregate from very many, many sources. And uh, Shoshana Zuboff, I'm sure, has talked about like the surveillance economy. I pulled a couple of examples from some recent articles that talk about some instances of what the surveillance society looks like. There is this warrantless poll camera surveillance program that's run by police where they could inadvertently or on purpose actually institute camera surveillance on polls around neighborhoods, which actually belies a person's Fourth Amendment rights. And then you have a company called Flock who does mass surveillance license plate readers, and that is going to happen regardless without consent. How does a company like yours work in a surveillance-ridden economy? And how do other companies need to change the way they're operating in order to minimize that threat? Yeah, these are actually very good examples. And to put it in context, if we look at it from a historical standpoint, East Germany was the classical police state. And in East Germany, they had one-sixth of the population conducting surveillance on the other five-six using human methods. And the scary thing is, in today's world, with advances in technology, you don't even need that anymore, right? You don't need to have one-sixth of the population cooperating with you to control the other five-six because Google, Facebook, these big companies, and you know the tech advancements, they allow you to reach that level of surveillance at a fraction of the cost, at a fraction of the ease. I would say that uh, if you compare what the Stasi knew on the average East German citizen compared to what Google knows on the average person, Google actually knows more. So inadvertently, we have entered kind of an ecosystem in a world where surveillance is more widespread than at any other point previously in human history. And the question becomes, what can you do about it, right? I think, of course, we can fight in courts and we should fight in court. And I think the work that the ACLU has done to try to stop some of these things from happening is extremely vital. But it's really, at the end of the day, in a capitalist society, a business model choice. And if the financial incentives are aligned towards surveillance capitalism and abusing privacy, then it's very hard to change that system. And I can give you an example with Apple. Apple puts it out that they're the privacy company, but Apple also runs the App Store, which controls and monopolizes app distribution on iOS devices. And how does Apple handle App Store policies? Well, if you're doing subscriptions as your, as your business model, which Proton has to because we're not an advertising company, we need to pay 30% of our revenue this is not profit. This is not margins. It's top line revenue uh, to Apple. And do you know what Facebook pays to Apple for kind of their billion or trillion dollar applications in the App Store? Facebook pays zero. Facebook pays zero because they don't monetize through subscriptions. They actually monetize through advertising and surveillance capitalism. So if you're an app developer you know, anywhere in the world seeking to build an application you know, in the App Store uh, or even the Play Store, because Google's policies are exactly the same. And you're confronted with a choice. I can either give 30% of my revenue to these tech giants, or I can abuse user data and give up nothing. Well, there's a strong financial incentive actually to go to surveillance capitalism. And so that's why I think competition is so important. We discussed this earlier, right? Competition policies would prohibit 
Apple and Google from applying these discriminatory 30% fees. And that would then create a structural change that would change the incentives, which would then make privacy business models more able to thrive and survive. And that's why it really is a policy matter from the top down, because at the end of the day, we need to create the right financial incentives because financial incentives are actually what makes market economies and capitalism you know, work. And it is the government's role because what we're seeing here in this situation is a failure of capitalism. Capitalism has entrenched essentially an outcome that is not good for society. And that's why you know, the only way to do that is, is actually for regulation to come in. This is why you have regulation on you know, clean air, regulation on food safety, because without that, it's always more profitable to pollute and to poison people, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at least we see the government coming in now. There are calls to pause AI because of the harms that we're seeing today. And from that perspective, maybe it's good. But at the same time, we also know that generative AI and and what it, it eventually will be is not necessarily always positive for the end user and even for the small business person. We're continuously, I guess, centralizing some of this technology as well. So where does where do you think Proton Mail fits from a generative AI perspective? And what do you guys need to do to evolve within this new type of technology? Yeah. AI is a very interesting topic because people view it as a disruption. There's all these stories on the press about how AI is gonna disrupt Google for the first time in two decades, right? But if you think about AI at its core, there's two components. Number one, you need massive amounts of data because the models depend on the data. And number two, you need massive number of users and human interactions to train the AI. And who has the most data and the most users? Actually, it's Google. So the outcome of AI might be to actually entrench and further consolidate the power of these you know, big tech companies. And that's why some people say AI is a chance for, dis- chance for disruption, but my view is actually it probably entrenches the status quo. And that's what makes it kind of worrisome. Now, what I view as relatively positive is if you look at how long it took, let's say, the governments to regulate marketplaces in the digital economy, like app stores, well, actually, they've been around for 20 years and they still are not regulated, right? AI has maybe only come onto the scene in a public way for less than a year and already governments are starting to act. So it may be more let's say hopeful this time, because instead of being two decades late to the game, we might see more proactive action later earlier on, and that could then steer things in a better direction. But it's always very tricky to regulate. On Proton's side, of course, we're not a data-driven company. We're not going to use massive amounts of data to you know, leverage for AI models. But at the same time, there are also ways to you know, use AI to improve security. And you know, we, so we will see some applications, but then in a privacy-preserving way that is aligned with our you know, values and our business model. Okay, so let's talk about some of the services that you have. What people, many people may not know is that Proton only also has a, uh, a VPN service. And this is one of the, I guess, one of the most used privacy tools I, that you have that's being used in Russia, in Iran, in Turkey, and many other locations. So tell us more about, you know, this specific service, the encrypted services. And as privacy becomes more of a concern, even in these regions and many other places where uh, privacy b- becomes more of an issue. In Europe, uh, here in Canada, and also in the States, we tend to take privacy for granted. We think it's not such a big issue because we've always sort of had kind of our freedoms, right? But if you look broadly across the world today, over 
70% of the population is living under a, a, you know, a regime that is not free. And that actually is just increasing over time. I would say, you know, dictatorships, they tend to increase over time because technology makes it easier to maintain them. And Pro.VPN is a very interesting case study in this because, you know, last year when the war in Ukraine started, Russia shut down its internet, shut down its free speech, shut down, you know, any dissent that was possible. The society kind of locked down. And in Russia, if you wanted to find the truth and get actual information of what's going on in the world, you had to use a VPN. It was your only window to get out to the free internet. And we saw the same situation happening in Iran when the protest started in the fall of last year. And in both cases, you know, millions of people came to put on VPN. And at one point, we were actually managing a significant fraction of Russia's internet traffic from people trying to get out to the outside and see what's going on in the world. And I think this is extremely important because without these tools being present, you can never really have change from within Russia if everything they see is propaganda. So it's absolutely essential to get people information so they can see what is going on. And VPN is a central tool to do that. And this is why we've invested heavily in that because it's very much aligned with Proton's human right mission. It's not easy, of course. It's a small company, limited resources against the resources of an entire state arrayed against you. So it's not really a fair fight, but I think it's a fight that's essential to win. And we see this everywhere. In fact, today, when there's a coup or some sort of a situation happening in any place in the world, whether it's Africa, South America, every single time democracy is under attack, it correlates directly to increase in use of proton services. And I think that's why it really proves that privacy and online freedom services, this is really at the forefront of democracy in the 21st century. Thank you. I think that that's, that's absolutely right. And like from your perspective, I know you're an underdog. I know DuckDuckGo is an underdog. I think these very cases that you talked about is, are going to be the things that are going to catapult the increased awareness for privacy and the demand for privacy. So, Andy, thank you for joining me today, and I appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. And we'll be back. Tech and Censored, an Altitude Accelerator podcast, does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and distributed by Bluemax. For more Tech and Censored content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemax.io to join us on Discord.